Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, wither the Libertarian Party. And Richard, we on this podcast talk about libertarianism all the time. We don't talk generally about the Libertarian Party, the political organization. But one of the things that we should probably clarify up front when we're talking about libertarians, you have made it a point in shows that we've done in the past to draw a distinction between capital L libertarians and classical liberal, which is the title that you use in reference to your own thinking. Draw that distinction out for us. Oh, sure. I mean, the, the libertarians start off, I think, with a perfectly sensible set of premises, which is that you want to ensure cooperation on the one hand, that is voluntary association in economic and social issues, and what you want to do is to control aggression. And the theory, quite simply, is association tends to be benevolent with the two parties to them. Uh, if, in fact, you have a bunch of people who are happy, uh, they're going to give greater opportunities to the rest of the world. So we want it. Aggression basically destroys one person and diminishes the options and applications for everybody else. And so um, you want to stop that. Now, that's fine as far as it goes, but does it go far enough? And the classical liberal position says it's not enough to just talk about entitlements. You have to talk about institutions. And if the only thing you have are these two normative rules, it's going to be very difficult to decide who's the aggressor and who turns out to be the victim. And so within the Lockean tradition, you try to establish some kind of government funded preferably by a flat tax system, uh, which essentially can protect property rights on the one hand, uh, encourage contracts, and stop various forms of aggression. But in order to do that, you have to have a system of taxation, and in some cases, you have to have a system of eminent domain. And so at that point, you have to force people to do things against their will, which libertarians don't like, and the justification has always been Given the difficulties of coordination in contract when you have many, many people trying to get together, a little bit of coercion is good so long as it secures an improvement which is shared, roughly speaking, equally by everybody in society. So the classical liberal position turns out to be more complicated, but it does things that the libertarian position genuinely dislikes. For example, it allows taxation. It allows eminent domain. It allows for judicial enforcement of legal rights. It allows for the creation of public infrastructure. It allows for the creation of institutions to stop the premature destruction of wildlife, which is what happens when you have uncontrolled efforts to go um, and capture things out in the wild. It allows for bankruptcy laws. It allows for formalities. It allows for a lot of things. It allows for protection of infants. And, and the hardline libertarians become absolute. And so what they keep telling you is uh, we don't need public roads and we don't need taxation. We should never use the eminent domain power. And oh, by the way, we're not really sure we ought to have a military defense establishment anyhow. <laughs> okay. So – that's that's the theory at work here. Let's talk about the politics. There has been a libertarian party in existence for several decades at this point, never really more than a blip electorally. Why, why is that? 
Well, I mean, let me start with a story about one of the early, maybe even the first of the Libertarian Party candidates. And, and it shows you something. These were actually two people I knew, and they were both friends of mine. One was John Hospice, who was running for president, who had been a very distinguished professor of philosophy at Brooklyn College and had just gone out to USC about the time that I went there. And his running mate came from across, not the country, but campus, was a man named David Berglund, who had been editor-in-chief of the Law Review at uh, USC. And, you know, they ran a campaign campaign, which was kind of cerebral and emphasizing the economic issues, I think, more than a lot of the personal ones. And about uh, five or six years after all this happened, I happened to run into Hospers, and I asked him this simple question, not expecting the answer that I got. He said, I said, well, how are things inside the Libertarian Party today? And he said, I quit. And I said, well, why did you quit? He said, well, whenever we got into meetings, the only thing that people really wanted to talk about was when we become president, can we accept a salary on that is our nominee accept a salary given that all taxes are theft? And, you know, he just could not bring himself to think that that's what a government ought to do. And, of course, all taxes are not theft. Taxes are theft if you take the money from A and you just give everything to B, C, and D. But to some extent, what taxes are designed to do is to take from everybody and give back to everybody public goods that they could not voluntarily assemble. And it's missing that return benefit feature of a, of a just system of taxation that drives the libertarians to extreme positions. It drove David out of the party. And then when you try to go public and say, you know what, I'm a libertarian, uh, let's close down let's close down all public roads, um, let's have no eminent domain power, let's have no taxation, people just start to think that you're bombing. And what happens, therefore, is that the party loses all credibility because it cannot make good on a promise of limited government because it has no theory really explicit and uh, pretty precise as to what it is that government should and should not do. This lack of an ability to prioritize, I guess. There, were, there was a piece uh, that appeared in National Review this week by Ian Tuttle who was at the Libertarian Party convention in Orlando. He made a couple of references to things along the lines of what you're saying there. Audience members booing at the idea that maybe the government should restrict driver's licenses for people who are blind or that maybe there was something wrong with uh, having drugs available for Children, when you look at things like that, these sort of absolutist, maximalist positions that you're talking about, do you walk away with the conclusion that a libertarian party is by its very nature just sort of doomed to fail as a political vehicle? Well, unless they sort of move more to the limited government tradition, they will surely fail because they state the kinds of propositions that leave people profoundly uneasy and very, very nervous. Um, you know, I do not think that drive public – that blind people should drive on public streets. Their argument is there should be no public streets. If you're private streets, then let the private owner decide that. Generally speaking, I'm hazard to guess that there's not a private condominium association in the United States that allows blind people to drive at random on their uh, private streets because we do have them. And the rule that I've always taken is when you're looking at complex social institutions like public highways and so forth, look at a private illustration of how these things are organized and then those rules 
rules will tend to be the ones that you will carry over into the public sphere. And if you're pretty confident, as I am, that most of these associations will not allow people to drive if they're blind, I think that's a good public rule. Now, the trick is, um, would these people allow people to drive without driver's licenses? What happens is the private associations are parasitic on the public ones. If they knew, in effect, that somebody had their driver's license suspended, they would not want them to drive in those associations. And if there were a world without driver's license, they might be hard-pressed to figure out how it is they decide who should be able to drive inside their private enclave and who not. And so it's this sort of inability to kind of draw sensible analogies and cautious generalization uh, that to most people makes them seem kind of strange. And then when you watch their bizarre behavior, the strange forms of dress and so forth, uh, and the kind of raucous behavior that goes on, uh, what you do is you have a serious guy, reasonably serious guy like Gary Johnson. I guess he's the nominee at this particular point in time. And he's riding a camel and a horse at the same time and a bronze. And they all bust up in slightly different ways. So my guess is that they will not be able to hold things together. What they really want to do is to say, we are responsible sober bunch. And if you don't like the big government excesses of Hillary Clinton and the erratic behaviors of people like Donald Trump, then come to us because we support free trade and economic growth. But most modern libertarians don't emphasize the sort of the economic liberty side of the business. They're much more into drug use and similar sorts of things where I think actually the arguments are really kind of complicated as to what should go on. Generally speaking, drug enforcement is a dangerous occupation to gaze, engage in, but uh, protecting children from gugs and having people sort of overdose and kill themselves at a regular basis with impurities, you know, these are things that you have to worry about and you need to have a discussion rather than a simple conclusion which says, well, these are things that people want to do, therefore the government has no reason to do them because they do not constitute aggression in and of themselves, even though, parenthetically, they may lead to aggression against others. Okay, you set the table there nicely for what the situation is right now. The Libertarian Party has nominated Gary Johnson, who's a former governor of New Mexico. He was a Republican when he was the governor of New Mexico, and he was the nominee the last time in 2012 after having briefly pursued the Republican nomination. His running mate is William Weld, former governor of Massachusetts. So you have two people there who have held office, mm -hmm. and the idea is that they should be in a position to be more attractive than most Libertarian Party candidates because you have – for a lot of people – an unpalatable choice between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. You also mentioned the emphasis there on the social issues. So let me let me turn to that for a second because uh, Ben Dominich writing today in the Transom, his regular newsletter, pointed out that one of the curiosities of this ticket, Gary Johnson and Bill Weld both pro-choice on abortion at a time when pro-lifers don't have an obvious candidate on either side of the ledger. What I'm curious about there, Richard, there is a division within libertarian ranks oh on my the gosh. question of abortion. Is is there a logical position on that topic that stems from being a libertarian? Well, there are two libertarian groups that I'm familiar with. One called Libertarians for Life and one called Libertarians for Choice. Um, and then there are variations on this by people like Maury Rothbard. And let me cut to the basics first and then to the variations. Um, a lot of this depends upon whether or not you think the conceived egg, the fetus, the embryo or whatever is a person. 
If it turns out you think that these things are persons, then the theory is they should be protected against aggression. And that includes aggression by the mother. And so therefore, at that particular point, you're a libertarian for life. If, on the other hand, you regard this as a random assemblage of cells, um, it's no different having an abortion on the one hand than um, sort of having a facelift on the other. And so therefore, you're now libertarians in favor of choice. The Rothbard position is a little bit more complicated, and it shows you sort of the unreality of this. He says that the infant that is conceived is, in fact, a quote-unquote parasite. And so what happens, since this parasite is aggressing against the mother, the mother is entitled to kill it in self-defense. Um, you know, I think most people tend not to think about uh, abortion in that particular fashion or conception in that particular fashion. They are certainly willing to allow that it may well be perfectly sensible to allow abortions in the case of rape because the aggression at that particular point comes from the man rather than from the uh, the unborn child, if that's what it is. Uh, but to sort of treat this thing as though it's an aggressor when in fact it's part of the necessary rhythm of life, uh, I think sort of leads to a huge disconnect between what's going on in the conception and birth cycle on the one hand from what goes on when you have the war of all against all on the other hand. And this is a battle of analogies and the one that Rothbard uses I think is really quite terrible under these circumstances, which is why it is I'm always very leery about signing on to any kind of uh, libertarian party doctrine because I think the kookiness sometimes outwells the other part. I mean, I did write on this subject when uh, Roe v. Wade came out many, many years years ago and the key question as it was put by my colleague in my words Blake Phil Curlin says when is a person is in fact an extremely difficult ontological quote unquote question to be able to answer and so you have to understand that there's some hard questions and for the most part libertarians don't believe in hard questions they just become impatient with people who don't understand what the right sort of effort answer is and you know my own view about the world is I think there are many many cases where government intervention is completely uncalled for and Lord knows I've written about the dangers of labor unions on the one hand with uh, compulsory powers for arbitration or collective bargaining minimum wage laws the anti-discrimination laws in competitive industries, tariffs, lots of other things. Uh, but I'm willing to defend them on the dominance of competitive equilibrium over alternative situations that is to be a bit more consequential in explaining what good comes out of these arrangements. Whereas for most libertarians, it's a blinding intuition, often quite perverse intuitions, that tends to drive their analysis. Amongst the more public self-identified libertarians, this would be the type of folks at Reason Magazine, for instance, mm -hmm. there's been a notion over the past few years that we were entering into this sort of rare libertarian moment in American politics, that all of a sudden there was an appetite for libertarian ideas that, that wasn't there before. Putting aside what the Libertarian Party is doing at the moment, you've been at this game for a long time. Is that your sense? Is there more currency for the kind of ideas that you espouse than there was in the past? Um, I would say it's almost the opposite. If you start looking on campuses, the number of classical liberals um, are – or Republicans or small government types, religious people of one sort or another, in mainstream campuses, their number is under 10%. And the great battle is what form of Democrat are you? And I would think that the real rising tides in America are represented by people like Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. They're anti-free trade. They're heavily populist. They're often demagogic. Uh, they basically believe that any financial institution that they don't understand is rigged against them, which in Bernie Sanders' case 
means that every financial institution um, is rigged against them. And, and they, they kind of they, – they take this very hard line and they attract these enormous crowds. And when I go off and speak, you know, there's 17 earnest libertarian conservatives in the room trying to figure out whether or not we've got Adam Smith right on moral sentiments and is it really consistent with the wealth of the nation. Uh, we are not a growth industry at this point. Um, in fact, uh, the, the last kind of public candidate that you had who might have represented this was Mitt Romney, and he did not push it very hard. He preferred to play the empathy card and got killed. Somebody like Paul Ryan, I would say, would be a thoughtful guy in that direction. Maybe Marco Rubio. I know Jed Bush. I mean, these are really kind of thoughtful people. But, you know, they just get blown away by somebody who has a two-word epithet. This one's a baby boy. That one's got low energy and so forth. And, you know, the world's greatest professional bully, uh, Donald Trump, manages to take over and to run lots of these kinds of things. I, I really think it's a very depressing uh, type of situation for people like myself inside the university in the larger campaign. I mean, you know, it's not that I don't think I have any, quote, personal influence. I'm sure I have some. Um, but if you're trying to talk about mass movements, uh, you can't put uh, libertarians who have, you know, under 10,000 people who follow them on Twitter um, in the same breath as somebody who has many millions. And I think, you know, the Twitter is, I think, a pretty good measure of the sort of instant popular appeal that you have. And mine is of a very limited variety. And I think most libertarians, even those who are a bit more pragmatic and less cerebral than myself, like Steve Forbes, I mean, I think they do have influence much more than I do in the popular arena. But I would certainly not call them dominant political figures today. Most libertarians basically today are laying low. They don't like anything that they see. And so they're very reluctant to make an endorsement in any direction. So the last thing that I'll ask you then, you used an interesting phrase a moment ago when describing your audience as you – libertarian was the adjective there, libertarian conservative. So in the final measure, given that we're describing a libertarian party that sounds pretty dysfunctional, do – I mean there are some libertarians who think that they can make common cause with Democrats. It's never been terribly successful. In, in the final measure, do libertarians have to deal with the fact that maybe the most politically practical thing is for them to cast their lot with conservative Republicans? Well, I mean, the problem is Donald Trump is not a conservative Republican. Who knows right. what he is? So casting a lot with him is not there. What you said was certainly true if the year was 1996 when the Republicans had a credible candidate in Bob Dole. I mean, Bill Clinton's general agenda at that particular time was to keep the bond market alive, to be generally in favor of welfare reform, to support things like NAFTA, and to keep the safety net in place and to have modest but not extreme progressivity with respect to taxes. Um, you know, as a political equilibrium, I could easily support somebody like Bill Clinton, even though it makes me compromise many of my deeper beliefs, because I understand where he's coming from then and what he does. But Hillary Clinton is way to the left of what he was in 1996 or 1998, and he today has moved way to the left. In part, I think it's because of the restlessness of America, given stagnant growth, that we really have to do something. And what's going to happen is we're going to make our ourselves into France. We will have more and more restrictions on labor markets. Things will get worse. Loans will become less available. And the Democrats at this point are impossible to make alliance with. Let me just sort of close on one little note. There was the most sobering graph in the New York 
rather in the Wall Street Journal this morning, about loan volume in the United States before and after Dodd-Frank. And basically, the total volume is down by about two-thirds. And in that smaller amount, jumbo loans dominate, uh, so that the group which has made the greatest advance, roughly speaking, has been the whites and the Asians, as larger shares than they were before, and other minority groups are smaller. This is the wave of the future. Um, if you keep putting these compliance costs on, what you do is you have to remember compliance costs are not linear with wealth or with the size of the transaction. And even for small transactions, they tend to be very big. And so everybody's going to veer in the opposite direction. So how can I want to make peace with the Democratic Party, which is essentially going to propose regulations that they don't understand, that are going to destroy the welfare of the very people whom they want to represent? Uh, Bernie Sanders would not know what the law of unintended consequences were if you hit him over the head with a brick. And he is perfectly happy being as ignorant as he can because he understands it's the path to power. Hillary Clinton has become thicker with respect to all of these issues than her husband, even when she made serious policy recommendations like capital gains treatment and so forth. She was just 100% wrong on everything she said. It's really a very grim scenario. Pick your poison, I think, because there's no way that this nation is going to come out of this election better than they went into it. Oh, for the days of Barack Obama, I thought I would never want to say that, <laughs> and frankly, I still don't. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.